The views expressed on Geeks and Beats are those of the participants alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of their employers. <laughs> My goodness. Seasonal allergies? I, I don't know where that sneeze came from. That was just uh, something else. I think, you know what it is? I think it's old man nose hairs. Yeah, David Letterman had a line that said, you pluck a nose hair, you're going to sneeze. <laughs> Do you know that if you try to keep your eyes open while you sneeze, which is... Oh, don't you dare tell me if you, op- if you open your eyes when you sneeze, they fall out. Well, no, no, they bug out, and they may, they may pop out. They won't pop out. This is a myth. Oh. I had to explain this to my nine-year-old daughter. My wife told her it was true. Saying it's a physical impossibility to actually keep your eyes open as you sneeze, because if you did, your eyeballs <sighs> would burst out of your skull. Shall we start the show? I'm sticking with that. From the headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine, now with 1.2 billion subscribers on iTunes and GeoCities, this is the world's most popular podcast with Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth, featuring musical guest Sting. In space, nobody can hear you pour a drink. The International Space Station gets a whiskey still. Why you shouldn't laugh at the Apple Pencil, even if Steve Jobs said no one would want one. And why Michael isn't going to race out and buy a big screen TV for the bedroom. Plus, how to win a tracker for your luggage. You'll always know where your bag is. Plus, why REM thinks Donald Trump is the end of the world as we know it. And when it comes down to it, they're not fine. Opinions are like iPhones. Everybody's got one, and nobody cares about yours. And now, Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth. Geeks and Beats uh, senior outer space correspondent Amber Healy reports outfitting the bar on the International Space Station. Oh, I am so jealous about this now. Every You know, of course, that uh, I do like my whiskey. Yes. And uh, I like my, my, my rare and odd whiskey. It doesn't have to be expensive. It just has to be interesting. But I would imagine that this whiskey, which they're aging in low Earth orbit, is uh, going to be rather dear. There's not going to be a lot of it around. And I'm, I'm, what, would it, what would the lack of gravity do to the taste of a fine whiskey. And that's the big question. They're looking for the answer with the boozy experiment conducted by the Japanese Aerospace Exploration Agency, also known as JAXA, in uh, the country's uh, experimental module nicknamed Kaibo. And it takes place in two phases. Group one, they hang out in space for a year. Group two, they spend two or more years in microgravity on the International Space Station. And then they check the batches. See, I would like to be part of this experiment. Now, <laughs> this uh, the, the distillery is Suntory, which is a very, very good Japanese whiskey distillery. I have lots of Suntory in the bar here. In fact, uh, on my way to Singapore this week, I will be stopping in Tokyo. I will be going to duty-free, and I will be buying some hibiki and some Suntory. Um, so they're starting with something that's really good. The ingredients, the raw materials for this is going to be really good. And uh, I, again, I would certainly like to volunteer to be the taste tester on this one. I wonder what the ultimate upshot here is, because I'm not familiar with the process where you start with the raw materials and at the end of the day, you've got whiskey. What what exactly is whiskey and what is the chemical biological process that's taking place that creates it such that it might actually be different if it's not using 
if it's not suffering from the forces of gravity. Well, this is what we don't understand. Fine whiskey requires aging, and you age it in barrels. Now, some of these barrels have been previously used for things like cognac or sherry or uh, maybe wine. Everybody's got their own little way of doing it. And the longer, generally, that you age whiskey in these barrels, the smoother and richer it becomes. Now, the problem is we don't know why. What is it about letting it sit there in these barrels that creates this wonderfully smooth um, a taste? Well, I can only imagine it's the breakdown of the proteins within the liquids themselves over time that give it its flavor. It's, it's the fermentation process, is it not? Well, well yeah, the whiskey is, is, is already fermented. What you're doing is aging it. Okay, so once they've aged it, when I can only imagine 12 months and 24 months is certainly not a lot of time in the world of whiskey to do so. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. There's the drinking element to it. And uh, Amber Healy goes to great depths, uh, great lengths here at uh, geeksandbeats.com to point out that this is not intended ultimately to be to be drunk because it has to be analyzed. But if you were to drink it on the International Space Station, you would need a, a cup of some sorts because you need a tumbler because you, you don't want to stick it in a sippy cup, do you? Well, you don't. And uh, you don't want to let any of this precious amber liquid go anywhere else except down your, your, your throat. Uh, if you want to get drunk on the International Space Station, there are Russians. That's why we have Russians up there, because they, they bring their own vodka. American astronaut Don Petit developed a zero-G coffee mug several years ago to make his morning cup of joe more like he had normally had on the ground. And a company has taken it to the next step with zero-G whiskey tumblers. And uh, at the end of the day, as we're looking at this space glass and a 3D-printed heavy plastic cup designed by the Open Space Agency, it's basically a sippy cup. It basically is a sippy cup. It looks a little bit more um, classy than your standard sippy cup, but there's really not much difference between this and a Geeks and Beats Miracle Travel Mug of Traveling, is there? <laughs> a good segue. We'll get to that actually a little bit later on. You're talking about classy. How about we segue into this? Okay. R.E.M. to Trump. Stop using our music, you attention-grabbing orange clown. <laughs> it's the end of the world as we know it. It's the of the world as we know it it's the end of the world as we know it and i feel fine i had never thought uh of donald trump's hair as being orange well it's his face that is well he's a noopa loompa for crying out loud <laughs> Please, Mr. Trump, please stay in the presidential race. I know it's still 14 months away from Election Day, but please, please, please do not drop out. This is absolutely fantastic. Well, the, you know what? There's the distinct possibility this is going to go somewhere because he actually signed some sort of pledge that he wouldn't run as a third party candidate. So either the most popular Republican candidate does not get the nomination and he steps down to that second position, which allows him to, what, become vice president? Like, Joe Biden's been comedy gold for the late show talk circuit for years now, right? Mm. Wouldn't you like to see someone like Trump, who has absolutely no power whatsoever, yet has all the comedic value? This is, uh, this is true. He would be the funniest vice president since... Um... Spiro Agnew since, uh, no, since Dan Quayle, since Dan Quayle. Yes, Dan Quayle, who can't spell potato. Yeah. So 
he appeared at a pro-war rally, Donald Trump did, uh, in, in uh, Washington, D.C. A pro-war with Iran rally is the way OccupyDemocrats.com describes it. Walking out uh, to the song, uh, The End of the World as We Know It. And R.E.M. took issue with that. Yeah, this is a big thing in the United States, uh, campaign songs, uh, songs that are appropriated by candidates for their rallies and whatever else they do. For example, Bill Clinton was one of the very first to use a popular song, a rock song, when he used Fleetwood Mac's Don't Stop when he was running. And that was okay with Fleetwood Mac because most artists tend to be Democrats unless your name is, uh, you know, Ted Nugent. Uh, <laughs> and they had no trouble allowing their song to be used by a Democratic presidential candidate, especially one that was the front runner. So there was no problem there. But every, every time any Republican, almost any Republican, steps on stage to the tune of some popular song, there are people that are freaking out over it. Don't use my song, you orange clown or whatever, uh, because uh, we don't agree with your policies and you're co-opting our music. And by playing our music at one of your rallies, you are insinuating our endorsement of you, which couldn't be further from the truth. So uh, R.E.M. being, um, you know, your typical liberal um, left wing sort of artiste type of band, you could understand how they would be upset with Trump using their music for, for one of his rallies, even though I think, I think it could be different in the United States. It's totally legal. So long as you've actually paid for the rights to broadcast that, am I correct? It doesn't matter well, what REM and Michael Stipe think. If they actually went to their publisher and said, we want to play this song when Trump comes out, here's the X number of dollars. Isn't it all on the clear? It, this is where it gets a little bit fuzzy. Now, when you have a venue, and it can be an arena, it can be a stadium, it can be a hotel ballroom, it can be a bar, all these places have to pay a mandatory public performance license. In the United States, it's BMI, or it's ASCAP, or it's CSCAP, or uh, CSAC. Here in Canada, we have SOCAN. And this fee covers any and all music, recorded live or otherwise, that is played in a public place, and uh, the money is then go, goes back to the, uh, in the United States, it goes back to the, uh, to the uh, composers, and Canada goes back to the composers and the musicians. So um, there are certain things where it gets a little fuzzy. For example, if this song is played during a televised conference from one, or a press conference or a rally from one of these venues, then there's uh, issues, what we call sync issues, that... Uh, might make things a little bit more complicated, but more or less, they really can't stop him from doing it. Well, as we learned not too long ago with Neil Young, apparently he had a relationship with Donald Trump that went south after the, he didn't invest in his pono, came out with Rockin' in the Free World, and now the two of them are at odds on that. For some strange reason, trouble follows Trump. Oh, please, Mr. Trump, stay in the race. Please don't go anywhere. You know, we've got our Canadian election and then we've got the American election. Ours will be over soon. Uh, we're halfway through our, our, our campaign, but we'll still have another glorious 13 months of American election cycle. My question is, is the recording industry aware of the concerns about phrasing? Did you just tell me that those organizations were called ASCAP and CBAG? ASCAP, yes, and CSAC. CSAC. Mm. <laughs> Sorry, the 11-year-old boy in me just came out. <laughs> yeah, stick with BMI. 
Own one of the craptastic mugs of the world's most popular podcast and support the show. You too can use the power of science to hold liquids, both hot or cold. Visit geeksandbeats.com today. So it turns out as Canadians, we really aren't worth that much to the music industry. We're not. Uh, if you open your Metro papers to the entertainment section this coming Friday, you'll see a column that I've written about this. This uh, has to do with some statistics released by the IFPI, which is the International Lobby Group Association for the phonographic industry. So all the uh, all the record labels of, of all kinds. And what they've done is they've gone through all the nations on the planet, or the ones at least that they have um, members in, and calculated the per capita spend on music. And now we Canadians like to think that we're really hardcore music fans. We support our own. We go to shows. We buy records. We buy CDs. We buy vinyl. We buy downloads. We you know do all these things. And, uh, you know, there was never any, I mean, if you look at the ranking of the amount of money overall spent by Canada, we're the seventh largest music market on the planet. We're just behind Australia. Well, when you look at it on a per capita basis, on a year-over-year basis? On a per capita basis. The Americans, for example, are $15.36 per year per person. Well, let's go back to Australia for a second. They have 22 million people in the country. We have 35 million. The per capita spend on music in Australia is $16.26. That is irrespective of uh, income level, education, ethnicity, geography, or any other uh, metric that you want to put on it. So every, if you average it all out, the, the Australian per person spends $16.26 uh, a year on music. Canada with 35 million people, spends just $9.74 per person. This puts us eighth worst in the world. Only South Korea, Italy, Spain, Brazil, Mexico, India, and China have a lower per capita spend on recorded music. You know why the Spanish only spend $3.87? Oh, I have a feeling you're going to tell me. Because the Latin lovers, they make their music with their bodies. Um, the big problem is is India and China. The average spend per person in India. Now, again, we have all kinds of economic issues in India. Uh, the average per person spend in India is eight cents. And this is a country with 1.1 billion people. In China, with 1.4 billion people, the average spend is seven cents. Uh, the Indian market actually contracted by double digits last year, and the Chinese market is is tepid at best because they've never paid for music. They've always had, uh, you know, free downloads. The music industry in India, I can imagine, is very different from that of the Western world for a variety of reasons, and not the least of which is the musical scale. In the Western world, we're accustomed to that those 12 notes. But I was reading something uh, on your website not too long ago that um, music in the in the eastern part of of the world it has more notes in it and i didn't even realize it was possible to have more musical notes on a scale than the standard 12 octave yeah it's 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 uh, it's it's mathematics we have uh, 12 notes that are linked by various ratios mathematical ratios other cultures have developed scales that are quite different from ours and uh, you know um south asian cultures for example have a completely different scale than we do chinese 
uh, the Chinese people have a different scale than we do traditionally. Which I can imagine is why the music has such a, a distinct and unique tone to it versus what I'm accustomed to in my Western ear. Right. Uh, it's very beautiful to the people who understand it and grew up with it. For people who are used to the 12-tone scale, it sounds atonal or out of tune sometimes. But that's not the case at all. It's just a different, different scale. Getting back to this per capita spend thing, India, for example, uh, they have a real problem because of various economic issues. People cannot afford music in India. And there are some really interesting things that they're doing with, uh, with dumb phones that allow super micro payments that allow people to listen to music streams um, for, for, for fractions of a cent. And it's in everybody's interest to get the Indian market paying for music in a more traditional manner. And this conference that I'm going to in Singapore, this is uh, uh, the one that I go to um, on a regular basis every May. Uh, we always talk about the Indian market and how it's evolving and how the there are these attempts to get this per capita spend up on music. Meantime, when it comes to streaming music, 95% of the songs available are irrelevant? We've talked about this before. Remember there was that one story, well, maybe 18 months ago, where we discussed how 20% of the songs on Spotify haven't been played once? Yes. Remember that? And then there, somebody came up with some kind of algorithm that allowed you to listen to random songs from Spotify that had never been played before. It was an interesting discovery tool. You didn't always get very good stuff, but at least some of these songs got got um, played at least once. The, the interesting thing about all this music, all this choice that we have, there are about 35 million songs available to every single one of the streaming music services. 95% of those 35 million are totally irrelevant to the standard music fan. They don't really care. Just because they don't listen to them? It's one of these cases where you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. You can give them all the choice in the world, but if people can't be bothered to listen for this music, search for this music, be patient enough with this music, uh, they're not going to care. So this is why it's, it's, it's incumbent upon the music services to come up with these new music discovery methods in the hopes that they will hook more people into music by allowing them to discover a lot of this stuff that they didn't know exist. Well, it's been suggested that since Spotify charges 10 bucks a month, they've got 20 million paying subscribers, but 55 million that aren't paying, that if you want to drive greater adoption and greater breadth of listening, that you lower the price from that $10 figure. There, there's a sweet spot in the dollar value, according to a media analyst Mark Mulligan. In his research note, he says, you got to cut the prices if you want more people to actually shift from being among the 55 million that pay nothing to the 20 million that do. Which goes back to this thing that we were talking about with Canada, because there were surveys done that say that Canadians would pay eh, five or six bucks, but they won't pay 10 bucks for a streaming music service. So there's something to what he's saying. But there's, you know, good luck with the music streaming services going back to the labels and the publishers and saying, hey, 10 bucks a month is too much. We want you to cut the price. Can you imagine the outcry? It's not going to happen. London, Bangkok, New York, Cincinnati. From the worldwide headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine. This is a GNB News Update. Still got a chance to win that track dot luggage tracker, and you, well, you can't win it because even though you're off to Singapore next week, there's no chance you're going to be able to 
pick this thing up. No, no, it's it's too late. I was unable to get a hold of one, so I'm going to hope and pray that uh, all the airlines, including the ones that are going to take me through Malaysia and China, don't lose my luggage. Gadget Ninja Erin Lawrence secured a track dot for us when she reviewed the thing on geeksandbeats.com. And the neat thing about it is it looks like uh, half a pack of cigarettes and you, you stick it in your luggage and it's cellular based. And so when the plane lands and the luggage ends up on the carousel, it sends off a note to your phone, whether it be a text message or a pop up or what have you to say, here's where I am. And if it's not where you are, then at least you know where your bags are. And the uh, great thing about the way that we're giving this away is that we are going to siphon cash out of you. Yes, thank you. We do need the cash because we've cashed out. The only way that you can win this is by being a member of the world's worst intern program. And how you do that is by becoming a patron of the show. One dollar an episode at least. And uh, every time we put out an episode, we ding you for a buck or two or five or ten, depending on how much you want to uh, support us for. And we'll throw in a raffle ticket for every dollar that you, in fact, support us with. So at uh, the uh, end of the big run, which is Wednesday, October 7th, we will uh, throw everybody into a virtual uh, raffle bin and pull out the winning number. So if you decide to support us with 10 bucks, that's 10 tickets. Yeah. And uh, the more you spend, the, the greater your odds. Speaking of spending, Grant Ridge, Geeks and Beats listener, has put his money where his mouth is. We were talking a couple of weeks back about the, we needed swag. We needed a license plate covers and things like that because that's what the old radio station swag used to be like. And I said, nobody's going to buy one of these. He went out and bought one. Oh, good. See, now that's two of us. <laughs> Wait a minute. You bought one as well? Well, I've got the license plate frame. Did it arrive? It did. Oh, and it's great. Did you install it? No, I haven't <sighs> yet because I'm going... No, um, it, it arrived just the other day. It's made of metal. It's very, very well manufactured. And it is going to go on... Uh, on I'll probably put, put it on the back so more people see it. Yeah. Of the Porsche or of the CRV? Oh, it's going to go on the Porsche. It is. It is one. It is extremely well made. It's much like the Miracle Travel Mug of Traveling in in the way it in its manufacturing process. I mean, Foxconn has nothing <laughs> on our suppliers because our stuff is really, really good. So we want to say thanks, Grant, uh, for that. We didn't make a dime off that. That was the other element to it, is, is we put it up there on the website saying, hey, if, if you think you want to buy one or a bumper sticker, we're not going to make any money off it. It'll cost you some cash, but that's only to get it to your door. But also, we do make a couple of bucks on the Miracle Travel Mug of Traveling, and Victor Biggio has tweeted a picture of his mug uh, at Caesars in Windsor, pointing towards Detroit, and uh, so the, he hashtagged it, GNB, and is a Norman, B Mug Tour 2015. Andrew Stokely did as well. He's in Paradise, Newfoundland, uh, throwing some rocks with the curling. And uh, we got some great shots from him, as well as Scott Coates packing out a bag out of Malaysia. He says, Bangkok, here we come, wild turkey and ginger in the mug. Ooh. Should I, should I pack mine for, for Singapore? You say you do. You were going to do it every time you go on jet set somewhere, and then you never I actually forget. do. I forget. Yeah. Uh, so we got a couple of bucks off that. So it's another great way to support the show. We really appreciate that. And you get this fantastic travel mug, which is apparently not just for coffee. As Scott is pointing out, you can put booze in it, too, apparently. I've never used it for anything but hot beverages, but I wonder what it would be like with cool ones. Well, it'll hmm. certainly keep your hot beverages hot and your cool beverages cool. Well, my coffee will stay. And I, this is a plug for one of these extremely well-manufactured <laughs> items that we have. Uh, my coffee will stay 
warm and drinkable for over two hours. Seriously, over two hours. So we want to thank our interns as well on the big show who now have a chance to win that track dot luggage tracker. Rob Laurie is our latest intern pledging $1 and he said a $0 lifetime limit, which means every time we put out an episode, we will ding <laughs> him. Aaron Warner's also in for a buck per show, but he's at a $50 lifetime limit, which sets us up for 50 episodes. So thank you for that. Benjamin Greslick, uh, Jeff Scarisbrick, Kevin Button, Dave Duva, Nick Alderati, among the uh, others as well. Uh, Michael Yurkovich was a uh, producer, a co-producer of the big show by donating 25 bucks. He gets not only the uh, mention on the big show, but uh, also the the album art suitable for printing and framing hanging in your parents' basement. He did that with a $125 limit, so we got a fair amount of cash out of him too. So thank you for all of that. That's very good. Uh, and, and we need this because uh, new iPhones are coming. Have you ordered your iPhone yet? Uh, you know what? I'm not getting the new iPhone, I don't think. No, you're not? But I have to say, I was blown away by their, basically, a, it's a, it's an iPhone subscription model. Do you know what I'm talking about here? The one where you get a new phone every year? Right. So for 32 US dollars per month, you get an iPhone. And then at the end of the year, you send it back. They send you a new iPhone. And, you know, rinse and repeat. Basically what this does is it turns the carriers into a bunch of dumb pipes. Exactly. (laughs) Apple has all the power. So for $32 times 12, it's a $384 purchase versus the seven eight hundred dollars off contract that you would pay if you just bought one and left it at that so it's a recurring revenue model that works well for apple and works well for you because you're not dropping all that kind of cash so basically what you're doing is you're paying the subsidized rate for the phone i don't know all of those details just yet and i don't think that anybody does either well let me put it this way i bought an unlocked phone this morning an unlocked uh, iphone 6s why on earth would you 6s Success. Why on earth would you do that? Well, I'm upgrading for my six. But they... What? No, I'm doing this for for you and for everyone. Oh, okay. All right. This is this is the, this is this is the gadgetry part of, of what we do here on Geeks and Beats. Somebody has to have one of the new iPhones. Are, are you are you all excited about the uh, 3D Touch? I um, I'm going to be confused by that. I really am. I'm really pleased, though, to see that Apple's recognized that because when they unveiled this new phone with this 3D touch, meaning that when you t- there's a difference between tapping the screen and pressing hard on the screen. When you Pressing press- hard and harder on the screen. That's right. When you press harder on the screen, uh, it pops up with additional options. And the fact that the vast majority of us won't have the new phone with the new screen capable of doing that, they've ensured that the only thing that this new feature does is provide you with quicker access to existing features so you don't get left out as an iphone user because your phone doesn't do force touch 3d touch you want to know how much i paid oh god what eight hundred dollars it was over a thousand it's over a thousand did you get the 128 megabyte no i got the 64 i could do the other one was 1200 for see i'm getting the unlock ones because i don't never want to be roped into a contract ever again but Okay, I, I know. Don't give me that disapproving look. I, re- I hate it when you do that. I really do. I'm doing this for us. Remember that. More importantly, are you thrilled to know that Apple has invented the pencil? Okay, I think we really need to deconstruct this a little bit because it's very important. Steve Jobs was dead against the stylus. Right. How are we going to communicate this? We don't want to carry around a mouse, right? So what are we going to do? Oh, a stylus, right? We're going to use a stylus. No. No. Who wants a stylus? 
You have to get them and put them away and you lose them, yuck. Nobody wants a stylus, so let's not use a stylus. We're going to use the best pointing device in the world. We're going to use a pointing device that we're all born with. We're born with 10 of them. We're going to use our fingers. We're going to touch us with our fingers. And we have invented a new technology called multi-touch. He was talking about the kind of stylus we used to have with the old Palm Pilots, right? Where you used it to poke things on the screen. The pencil is different. It is actually a drawing tool. And I've talked to a bunch of animators, people who are professional cartoon drawers or whatever else. They're really quite excited about this because of the things that they'll be able to draw because it's not only just straight lines of a certain thickness. You can actually change the color. You can change the, uh, the shading. You can change the, the, the width depending on how you use the pencil. It looks really cool. And I'll tell you why it's also a really good idea, the Chinese market, because you're going to be able to create proper Chinese characters, which ah. need all the, 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 the fancy scroll work. This is not dumb. This is not a stylus. It is a drawing tool, and it is much different because one of the things that people immediately when the, they announced the, the pencil, mm -hmm. people started making fun of it. And I thought, well, that's, you're missing the point. It's not about poking things. It's about using it as a drawing tool. So there. You, you convinced me. I'm dropping 100 bucks On what? The pencil? Sure. Well. I can't write in kanji, but okay. No, I neither can I, but, and I can't draw worth crap. But, uh, and I think, what's it, $99 US? Yep. Ever wanted to be a big shot co-producer? It's just like Hollywood. Visit geeksandbeats.com to learn how you can pad your resume with an exciting show credit. We'll even send you the album cover of your episode, suitable for framing in your parents' basement. The iPad Pro that was announced by Apple this past week, um, I'm really interested in seeing where they're going with this, particularly since this looks like a laptop killer. Well, it does, uh, especially with that $169 magnetic snappable keyboard that goes along with it. <laughs> which they invented, um, which has Microsoft spit and nails, because of course the Surface tablet has had this forever, forever. So here's my theory about why they came out with the iPad Pro. Uh, enterprise solutions. Yep. Uh, it's for business. Uh, they saw that the Surface was actually making some very deep inroads into the enterprise business, and they thought, mm, no, we can't let you have it. Uh, and uh, iPad sales have actually been declining over the past couple of years, so it's important that they come up with something new and shiny and, and find a new market for these things. And what makes that particularly likely the impetus behind going with a, a massive uh, iPad. Well, what's the screen size on it? 12.9 inches now? Yeah. Uh, is that the new operating system also features something called split screen, which I know Windows tablets have been doing for a while. Mm. But this will give you the ability to have, say, a web page on the left side and that email on the right side, plus the typing capability. So you've got this enlarged real estate so that you're now dealing with a device that's not just a content consumption tool. It's a content creation tool. The brains behind it, the chip in it, the engine is so fast. It's capable of simultaneously editing three 4K video streams. What? Simultaneously? Simultaneously. So if you had shot three 4K video streams, you could be live editing it as it goes. Wow. 
So this is clearly a device that needs the power to do the split screen, multiple apps running simultaneously as, a fo- as opposed to faux simultaneously, what they've been doing so far mostly, right. and pop up with the keyboard. And the keyboard, now that it's a 12.9-inch diagonal screen, is so much bigger for a touch typing scenario. This has got enterprise written all over it. But frankly, I'd be more than happy to have this as an alternative uh, to uh, putting a 40-inch TV in the bedroom. Well, I can see why, because you have a very good screen. It's up close to you, so it doesn't really matter how wide it is. The effect is the same. You plug in a good set of headphones, and you've got something pretty pretty amazing there. And I'm wondering, you know, I'm feeling like a bit of a chump now, having purchased the 12-inch MacBook, the really, really small, thin one, for, our, for when I go on the road. Because now you could have had a 12.9-inch tablet. Y- yeah, which is even lighter. Yes. So this is going to appeal to people who want to leave their computers at home and just head out on the road with, 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 with a tablet. Mm-hmm. Hmm. By the way, I was only joking about the idea of buying the uh, iPad Pro as an alternative to a 40-inch TV in the bedroom. And, and you know why you should not have a TV in the bedroom, right? Um, I have a TV in the bedroom. Why? Who is it? It's the plumber. Plumber? I didn't call a plumber. <laughs> People with a television in their uh, bedroom are, are having twice as much sex, according to the Mail Online. <laughs> we don't turn ours on that often. Which is a stark contrast to what I had previously read from the Daily Mail two years earlier, which said people who have a TV in their bedroom have half the amount of sex. So which is it? I, I, I don't know. Uh, initially, all respondents were asked, do you have a TV in the bedroom? To which three quarters, 74% of people taking part in the survey said yes. Um, and then they were asked on average uh, to state how many times per week they had sexual intercourse with their partner. Once the results were correla- uh, collated, they showed that those who had a TV in their bedroom had sex on average twice per week, while those without a television in the bedroom had it on average once you know, a I've week. No, I've just noticed something. Uh, I used to be pilloried for the guy who always steered the program into porn, uh, you're the one who always steers it into sex. Well, but, but hang on. I went looking up the statistics that I just quoted, and they've changed since the last time we talked about this subject. I'm, I'm confused. I'm concerned. I don't know what to do. You're simply advancing the story is what you're saying. Thank you. I'm simply advancing the story. All right. Well, nice, nice work. Uh, I'm confused. Perhaps people can... Call the uh, the hotline or send us emails and uh, tell us exactly what their experiences are with TVs in the bedroom. During the meanwhile, if Chewbacca made house music, I found this for you. <laughs> Somebody get this big walking carpet out of my way. God bless the internet. The internet is a wonderful place for finding things that are that you didn't know you needed. And here is an example of something I didn't know anyone needed. It's uh, a mashup of Chewbacca from Star Wars um, with his various vocalizations turned into um, into house music. Shall we play the whole minute twenty nine? I can't see how it could hurt.
Wookie. Good relations with the Wookies I have. There are a number of people who specialize in these various mashups. Uh, when we were just doing audio mashups, there was, uh, there still is, uh, a, a group called Go Home Productions that did some really, really good stuff. I'm on the Eclectic Methods website. Johnny Wilson's the guy's name, and he writes, he started out as a digital outlaw who spliced together music, TV, and film and set it to high-energy dance beats. He worked frequently with Brian Eno, he says. Oh, okay. Well, what makes this really interesting is the, the video editing. Because it's not just audio, it's, it's, it's they've actually taken <laughs> copyrighted video from George Lucas and, and, and made a music video around this music. One of the most popular videos on geeksandbeats.com right now is the mashup between Star Wars and the A-Team. And they too managed to perfectly time explosions to the explosions that were in the original 1980s theme. There's a, another one that you should check. Um, I'll, I'll send you the link. It's... Uh, the, uh, the Hell Nightclub runs about uh, 10 minutes, and it's all these nightclub scenes wonderfully stitched together. I mean, everything from Roadhouse to um, Scarface, and there's a musical soundtrack to it. It is brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Uh, reading uh, Johnny Wilson's bio here, he's uh, got several uh, big shot names quoting him quite favorably. Uh, the Toronto Star uh, called him uh, the coolest video dance party you've ever uh, you've ever been to. Campbell Brown on CNN, Internet Genius. Brian Eno himself quoted as saying, this was bound to happen sooner or later. And Stephen Colbert called him DJ Jazzy Jerkoff. <laughs> and I think he meant that with love. Have you been watching the new Stephen Colbert on The Late Show? I've uh, seen two. Um, it's been okay. Have, have you found that he's working very, very hard to shed his fake Rush Limbaugh image? Yeah, it's, it's tough. I mean, he really has to show Stephen Colbert rather than Stephen Colbert, the weirdo right-wing pundit. And he's just Stephen Colbert, the weirdo. Yeah, it's, 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 it's really tough. What do you think of the band? I think the band's an interesting choice. I was surprised that um, for the first episode, the premiere episode, they made the band the musical guest. Yeah. The band leader with his crazy little, um, wh what is that? It's his little piano that he blows into. Yeah. I, 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 I could be wrong, but I think it's an ocarina. The first I had seen that was actually, I think it was, um, was it Florence and the Machine? Oh, these things have been around for a very long yeah. time. Yeah, but uh, I, I'm I, I like that he's going very R and B with the whole thing. But uh, my biggest complaint is actually the show intro. Yeah, I find it a little low energy, a little lacking. It's very low energy. Tonight, and he's the one who's doing the VO. Stephen welcomes George Clooney. I get the joke, but I think you need an announcer. Governor Jeff Bush. Musical guests Mavis Staples and Friends. Featuring John Baptiste. And Stay Human, come on. higher energy and not musically speaking just with the editing of the video there's just simply not enough going on uh, to warrant the space between the announcement of the various individuals who are coming up on the big show every 
late night talk show, uh, almost everyone has some sort of uh, the host plays off the announcer. Right. And and that's so right now it's Stephen on his own with a little bit of introduction banter with the with the band leader. But that's it. It feels like Stephen is, is is carrying too much of the load at the moment. The ceiling of the Ed Sullivan Theater has a, a dome, and they've changed it such that there must be like a fabric tarp over it. I think it's a digital projection. Right. And on the other side, they digitally project uh, the Stephen Colbert kind of um, stained glass, which means they could actually animate the thing, and that would be really funky. It, it would be cool, kind of cool. What, what's the roof going to do today? So you're going to watch him, uh, give him a shot? I'll give him a shot. I mean, I like him. Um, CBS is pouring an awful lot of money into it, you know, and and this is a marathon. I mean, one of the things that the Drudge Report the following day said was that uh, ratings plummet for the second Stephen Colbert show. Well, of course they're going to plummet. The curiosity factor of the first show was going to be huge. So it's going to develop. It's going to have its own character. It's going to have its own characters. So it's just a matter of time before it, it finds its stride. It will. Much like this show, four years in, maybe we'll find our stride someday. One day, one day. (laughs) Catch all new episodes of Geeks and Beats Wednesdays on iTunes. And watch for Geeks and Beats magazine on a newsstand near you. To be part of next week's show, call area code 323-319-NERD. Follow the stories on Twitter or Facebook. And get your dose of Geeks and Beats anytime at geeksandbeats.com. The Geeks and Beats podcast would like to thank the National Science Foundation.